which we might not necessarily want to hear, but it is God's word to us. So with that introduction, uh, let me read to us uh, Micah chapter 1, starting at verse 1 through to verse 16. And brothers and sisters, this is God's word. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth during the reigns of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. The vision he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, O peoples, all of you. Listen, O earth and all who are in it, that the sovereign Lord may witness against you. The Lord from his holy temple. Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and treads the high places of the earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down the slope. All this is because of Jacob's transgression, because of the sins of the house of Israel. What is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria? What is Judah's high place? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap of rubble, a place for planting vineyards. I will pour her stones into the valley and lay bare her foundations. All her idols will be broken to pieces. All her temple gifts will be burned with fire. I will destroy all her images. Since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes, as the wages of prostitutes, they will again be used. Because of this, I weep and wail. I go about barefoot and naked. I will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl. For her wound is incurable. It has come to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. Tell it not in Gath. Weep not at all in Beth Ophra. Roll in the dust. Pass on in nakedness and shame, you who live in Shafir. Those who live in Zain, those will not come out. Beth Ezel is in mourning. Its protection is taken from you. Those who live in Maroth writhe in pain, waiting for relief because disaster has come from the Lord, even to the gate of Jerusalem. You who live in Lachish, harness the team to the chariot. You were the beginning of sin, 
to the daughter of Zion. For the transgressions of Israel were found in you. Therefore, you will give parting gifts to Morasheth Gath. The town of Akzib will prove deceptive to the kings of Israel. I will bring a conqueror against you who live in Marashah. He who is the glory of Israel will come to Adjalam. Shave your heads in mourning for the children in whom you delight. Make yourselves as bald as the vulture, for they will go from you into exile. Let's pray. Father, this is a very serious word that we hear from you this morning. But we want to ask for your grace to receive it. Open our eyes that we will see you, the King of glory, the true and living God, exalted and on his throne. Father, we know that you are not just a holy judge, but a gracious saviour. And so, Father, we pray that you would so speak to us through your word this morning that we would know you better. That, Father, you would convict us of the sin in our lives that we need to repent of and forsake and indeed hate. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you will also comfort us with your mercy and your grace. We pray that you would give us a deeper knowledge of how much we are loved in Jesus and all that his death on the cross has achieved for us. Bless us, Father, we pray, for we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Over 50 years ago, uh, Carl Menninger, who was the famed American psychiatrist, wrote a book called Whatever Became of Sin? And in it, he laments how as a culture, especially in the West, uh, we've lost the language and indeed the very concept of sin. Instead, we've replaced it with ideas like sickness or addiction or things like that. But there is something, Manager says, that is profoundly dehumanizing when we take away the moral autonomy and in particular personal responsibility that each and every one of us has. Because in losing the idea of sin, we undermine the biblical truth that we have been made in the image of God. Closely connected to that and related to that is the concept of God's judgment. Because without the personal responsibility that is associated with sin, the idea of God judging us also dissolves. The Bible, though, clearly teaches these two foundational truths, that we are sinners and that there is a God who judges. And we see a powerful description of that 
in Revelation 19, where the Lord Jesus is one day going to return in glorious risen power as a rider on a white horse. And he is going to judge the world because of its sin. Uh, Johnny Cash, uh, the famous American country music singer, actually wrote a song on that passage called When the Man Comes Around. Even if you don't like country and western music, it's worth Googling. It's a really good song. God's judgment, though, is obviously horrific. Especially if you're on the wrong side of it. Because John says that the enemies of God will be thrown into a fiery lake of burning sulphur. And that, as we read before, the birds of the air will gorge themselves on their flesh. As horrific as that is, there is also something profoundly glorious as to what John writes. Because deep down, we all long for justice to be done. We want wrongs to be righted and sin to be judged. Thankfully, though, the theme of judgment is not God's last word, and he also offers us a way of escape. But we won't get to that in Micah until the uh, next week when we look at chapter 2. You can't really appreciate the preciousness of God's salvation, though, until you realise just how serious our situation is. And so what I'd like to do today is to stop and reflect on the seriousness of sin. To feel the full weight of what it means that God is going to come and he's going to judge the world. Now, there are three aspects in particular that I'd like to focus on. And they are about God's prophet, God's people, and finally, God's plan. The first point, then, is God's prophet. Now, unlike the other prophets of his day, that is, Isaiah and Hosea, Micah doesn't tell us how the Lord called him. Micah simply tells us where he's from. And that he's, he's, he's from a little town called Morasheth. It's so little that later on you hear it's Morasheth Gath. It was a small and insignificant agricultural village halfway between Jerusalem and the Mediterranean Sea. I'm told that if you could put it into context down here, it's a little bit like the town you have down here. Uh, is it Leowini? Leowini? One of the coldest places in Tassie. Anybody been to Leowini? Oh, there's a smattering. Well, Morasheth Gath was one of those nothing towns. It's the town that people know about, but very few people visited which means that Micah comes from very humble and obscure beginnings. He's not one of the religious elite. He's not one of the intellectually gifted. 
He doesn't, uh, he doesn't mix with the rich or the influential or the politically powerful. And his name simply means this, Micah, who is like the Lord? Who is like the Lord? But that really fits in with his whole message because the reason the Lord raised him up was to rebuke the religious leaders and the political leaders of Israel who had become completely corrupt, to confront them regarding their sin. And it's such a classic case, really, of the Lord raising up the weak to rebuke the strong. God often does this, especially when his people become proud or complacent. You know, I think, for example, of someone like Martin Niles of the Australian Christian Lobby, someone who has never been to Bible college, had any theological training, and yet I believe that the Lord is probably greatly using more than any other Christian leader in Australia to speak God's word. That should be a rebuke to the religious establishment. And it, I think it is. It's exactly the same with Micah. From a human point of view, he was a nobody and he came from nowhere. He was raised uh, in some out-of-the-way town and he was not one of the prophets. But he was someone whom the Lord graciously chose to speak his word. That's the first thing we learn, is about God's prophet that he's called. The second thing we learn from Micah chapter 1, and this is the bulk of the chapter, is about the people of Israel and what they were like at this time. And in particular, they were in a state of nothing less than spiritual apostasy. So much so that they had even become the centre for pagan worship. If you have your Bibles open, have a look again at verse 3. This is really quite shocking because when Micah summons everyone to hear his message in verse 2, you would expect him to be confronting all of the Gentile pagan nations. But the thing is, he doesn't. Instead, the very one that he goes on to rebuke are God's very own people. Micah says in verse 3, Look, the Lord is coming from his dwelling place. He comes down and he treads the high places of this earth. The mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire, like water rushing down the slope. That should give you a fearful dread of the holy presence of God coming to his people. You could no more stand before the presence of a holy God than you could stand in the presence at ground zero of an atomic bomb. Such is his awesome power and the majesty of his holiness as he comes to his people. <coughs> By the way, this is not just a reference to the tops of the mountains. The high places were where the people engaged in idolatry. And idolatry in the Bible is always some form of spiritual adultery. 
That's why he goes on to talk so much later on about prostitution. Because God's people had prostituted themselves to idols. In particular, the god Baal is often described as the one who sat astride of the mountains. And yet here, Micah says, when the Lord comes down from heaven, Micah doesn't see Baal, he sees the Lord trampling the high places. The Lord tramples the high places where the people of Israel had been worshipping and offering sacrifices to the pagan god Baal. Micah sees the Lord as trampling Baal under his feet. Verse 5, what is Jacob's transgression? Is it not Samaria, the capital of the northern um, tribe? What is Judah's high place? What is its place of pagan idolatry where it's prostituted itself to idols? Is it not Jerusalem? The place where God's temple dwelt? The place where there was to be supposed to be no idols but to be a pure worship of the Lord? Has that not become the centre of sin? Micah says. Isn't that shocking? That the Lord's temple should be viewed as no better than a pagan shrine. The very centre of idol worship. And so what does Micah say will happen? Well, according to verses 6 and 7, Israel's places of worship will be torn down and destroyed. To gain a sense of just how shocking and unbelievable this is, You've got to imagine something like, it's hard to describe, but it's something like Mount Wellington being destroyed. Something that everyone thinks is so strong and, and <coughs> pardon me, something so strong and immovable and more than a few people in Hobart think is sacred. And yet the Lord can remove in a single moment. That's exactly what is going to happen to Israel. Everything she boasted and trusted in is being threatened to be taken away. And that is just completely shocking to an Israelite mind. Which means that all the wealth that she had amassed herself through her idolatry will be taken away. I, I think sometimes of the Presbyterian Church of Australia in this regard. You know, we used to be one of the biggest denominations in Australia. But I think over time we experienced the judgment of God as we were unfaithful to his word. I was talking to David Jones during the week and he was lamenting how close, or he was actually rejoicing in how close the, the Reformed and Presbyterian churches were in Hobart, and he said, but he was lamenting that there was still a divide, and he said, you know, Mark, it's actually written into the Reformed church's constitution that when the Presbyterian church gets its act together, then they'll join us. <laughs> <laughs> and you know what? The Reformed church was right to do so. They were godly and wise to do so. Because for so many years, the Presbyterian church was unfaithful to God's word. But I think in his grace, we're seeing a revival of 
God's word being preached and taught and believed and obeyed. In the same way, Israel had forsaken the Lord. Israel had gained this wealth through spiritual prostitution and in the end, that's all it will be used for. That's why Micah says at the end of verse 7, since she gathered her gifts from the wages of prostitutes as the wages of prostitutes, they will be used again. It's such shocking language, isn't it? God's people had become a harlot. That's how far gone God's people had become. All of which leads us to the third and final point. And that is, what is God's plan going to be in response? And in short... He intends to send them into exile. To kick them out of the promised land and to be ruled by another nation. And I think at this point, friends, we need to stop and to feel the full weight of God's warning. Because sometimes we see God and we know that God has a sword, but we think he never unsheathes it. And if he does, he never uses it. But he does. He does use it. That's why Micah says in verse 8 that he will go about barefoot and naked. He will howl like a jackal and moan like an owl for her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached the very gate of my people, even to Jerusalem itself. You see, Micah sees and understands exactly what the judgment of God will look like. It will mean the loss of everything they have. Security, possessions, prosperity. All of it will go because Israel has trusted in idols rather than trusting in the Lord. And there's absolutely no way that they are going to be able to save themselves. Her wound is incurable. That is a really key point that we must not overlook. For our problem as sinful human beings is not just that we're spiritually sick. That's what some people think, a lot of people think. Oh, you know, I'm sick, but if I just take more responsibility, if I just get my act together, I'll be okay. We're not sick. We're dead. As the prophet Jeremiah says, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? That's why it's such a dangerous thing whenever we think, oh, just follow my heart. You may as well say, I'll just follow my cancer and see where that leads me. It won't be health. The heart is deceitful above all else and beyond cure. Now, there's a number of strange-sounding names that are mentioned in verse 10 and following. And at first, they can sound a bit weird. But in Hebrew, they actually involve a very deliberate as well as a very clever play on words. 
Because the name of each town sounds like the very thing that is described that is going to take place. Uh, one person I was reading it paraphrased it like this. Uh, Tell it not in Tellington. Wail not in Wailing. Dust Manor will eat dirt. Dressy Town will flee naked. Safehold will not save. Walchester's walls are down. A bitter dose drinks bitterton. That's the sort of language. You see what Micah's doing? It might seem a little hard for us to associate or feel the full weight of what Micah is saying. Let me, let me try and contextualise this for us here. The place of snug will become unbearable. Yeah. Tasmania has the best sounding names, I've got to say. Peppermint Bay, Snug, Cuddlepot Village. <laughs> snug will become unbearable. I can't resist, I'm sorry. Those living on the eastern shore will be covered in darkness. Those that live in Hobart, as if you were living in Launceston. <laughs> Sorry, again, I couldn't resist. The whole point of what Micah is trying to say to his people are, you are trusting in where you live, don't. Wake up. It will not save you. To realise that they can't trust anymore in the things of this world. As one commentator I was reading put it, names are treated as omens which, once observed, haunt the localities until they are fulfilled. They are revealed as clues to the curse that is to come upon the country. That's what Micah is doing here. For the Lord himself is going to come from heaven to judge his people, and when he does, there will be no escape. Nothing and no one will be able to deliver from his hand. In his book, The Holiness of God, if you've never read it, put it on the list to read this year. The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul. He gives the following powerful illustration. Sproul said that he once had to teach a first-year Old Testament course uh, to 250 students at a local Christian college. On the first day, he went over what was expected in regards to their assignments. He explained everything really carefully. The course required three short papers, and he explained to the students the first paper was due on the last day of September. No extensions were to be given, except for those who were physically sick or who had deaths in their immediate family. What's more, if the paper was not handed in on time, Sproul said they would receive an F, for the assignment. They all acknowledged that they understood the consequences of failing to comply and they all as a class, 250, agreed to the terms. The last day of September came. 225 students dutifully handed in their term papers. 25 students stood, Sproul said, quaking in terror, full of remorse. After hearing all of their excuses, he bowed to their pleas for mercy. All right, he said, I'll give you a break this time. But remember, the next assignment is due the last day of October. He said that the students were profuse in their gratitude and filled the air with solemn promises of being on time for the next assignment. Yes, 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 Dr. Sproul, we promise, we promise. 
Then the last day of October came. 200 students came with their papers and 50 turned up empty-handed. They were nervous, but not in a panic. After listening to all the excuses, though, he thought he would be gracious and he'd let them off again. All right, okay, he said, but mark my words, this is the last time. If you are late for the next paper, it will be an F. No excuses, no whining, an F. Is that clear? Well, by now you can probably guess what happened on the last day of November. 150 students came with their term papers. The other 100 rolled into the lecture hall totally unconcerned. Where are your term papers, he asked. One student replied, oh, don't worry, Professor. We're working on them. We'll get them to you. We'll have them for you in the next couple of days. No sweat. R.C. Sproul said, I picked up my lethal black grade book and I began taking down names. Johnson, do you have your paper? No, sir, came the reply. F, he said, and as he wrote it in the grade book. Muldaney, do you have your paper? Again, no, sir, was the reply. R.C. remarked, another F in the book. Sproul said that the students all of a sudden howled in protest, screaming, that's not fair. And so he looked at one of the students and he said, Lavery, you think it's not fair? No, he growled in response. He said, oh, I see it's justice you want. I seem to recall that you were late on your last term paper as well. If you insist on justice, then you will certainly get it. I'll not only give you an F for this assignment, but I'll give you an F for the last assignment as well. The student was stunned. He had no more arguments to make. I'll just take the F for this one, thanks, sir. He apologised for being so hasty and was suddenly happy to settle for the F for one instead of two. Now, R.C. Sproul concludes by saying this. The students had quickly taken my mercy for granted. They assumed it. When justice suddenly fell, they were unprepared for it. It came as a shock. And they were outraged. This after only two doses of mercy in the space of two months. And it's exactly what happened in Israel. And can I say to us, it's exactly the same mistake we can make as Christians. You see, the Lord had shown them mercy over and over and over again. They had worshipped idols. He had sent his prophets to warn them. But again and again and again, they ignored him. And so finally, when the Lord did come in judgment, and friends, make no mistake, he did. They were left without excuse. One author I was reading applied what Micah says here in chapter 1 like this. Let me read to you this slowly and carefully so it really sinks in. He said, Many Christians are practically addicted to television shows that advocate sexual promiscuity, crass speech, and a general self-centeredness. 
And then he says, this secular influence leads them into these same sins. With the rise and inavailability and popularity of things like Netflix, how much more do we need to heed what that warning says? Because, you know, our screens can really just be a modern-day expression or manifestation of what we worship, can't they? We give ourselves to them with a time and a commitment and an attention that if we were to calculate the amount of time that we spent in front of our screens and we were to add that up, we would shudder to think of how much time they've taken up or we've lost. Micah's message to Israel and to us is to wake up. Wake up from our spiritual lethargy and slumber. To snap out of our idolatry and our love of this world. And to in particular mourn and grieve over our idolatry. That same author I just mentioned goes on to say this, as if he wasn't challenging already enough. He says, in towns and cities where we live, babies are slaughtered inside their mother's wombs. Promising lives are destroyed in the insanity of drug abuse. And innocents are abused by men whose hearts are twisted by pornography. God will judge all these things. But if we can go about our comfortable lives knowing all this, but saying nothing, doing nothing, and feeling nothing, then something is just as wrong with us as it was with Micah's original audience. Even more pointedly, if we are participating in the sins that are consuming our society, including sins of materialism, racism, sexual impurity and sensually hedonistic entertainment, our hearts should be mortified by the realisation of what is being reaped from what we are sowing. Realising also that one consequence of our worldliness may be the loss of our children to the bondage of sin and ultimately perhaps to hell. We should wake up and lament before it is too late. We should wake up and lament before it is too late. Oh, that the Lord would give us eyes to see. That we would recognise what it is that we are worshipping other than the Lord. And once recognising it, that we would, by God's grace, turn from those things and worship him and him alone. That is the message the world needs to hear. That is the message we need to hear. What does it mean, though, friends, particularly for our witnessing? This is what I want to finish with, because this is where I think the rubber really hits the road. Because Micah provides something of a model for us in this regard. And there are four things in particular that I think we can learn. The first is to be creative. 
When Micah was inspired to speak God's word to his countrymen, he did it in a way that would have really connected. The puns and plays on names of the various towns, for instance, I think would have really resonated with those that he spoke to. Our identity is closely connected to where we live. Micah is not just doing that for amusement, but to really make people stop and think. And in a similar kind of way, it's good if we can think about how to creatively apply the gospel to those that we speak with. Following on from that, we need to be courageous. No one wants to hear the bad news of being judged. But you can't fully appreciate God's offer of salvation until you feel the full seriousness of his judgment. And as such, we really need to be courageous as we share God's word with others. In Jeremiah 26, the life of Jeremiah the prophet was saved when the elders of the land recalled the example of Micah. You know, that was about a hundred years after he had died. We don't hear anything else about Micah in the rest of the Old Testament, but his example still lived on even after he died. And if we're faithful to the Lord, he will use us in a similar kind of way. Someone once said that our lives will either be a warning to others or an example. Which will you be? A warning not to go that way or an example to inspire others to follow? Which will you be? Because if we're faithful to the Lord, then he will use us in a similar kind of way even though it means that people will think less of us. We need to be creative. We need to be courageous. But we also need to be caring. One of the things that strikes you, isn't it, about what Micah says here is that he, how did he respond to being given this word from God to speak to his, his fellow countrymen? Well, there's probably two words that really sum up Micah's emotional disposition of heart. He wept and he wailed. He wept and he's wailed over those who were in danger of experiencing God's wrath. In other words, he loved deeply those that he spoke the word of God to. James Montgomery Boyce writes, Do you want to be successful in your witness? then do not give the impression that your sole duty is to announce a disaster and that you couldn't care less what happens to those whom you speak. Boyce says, more people have been won by honey than by thunder. Many have rejected a Christian's logic, but have been won over by their tears. That we would care enough to... Weep for those that we are sharing the gospel with. 
our witnessing is obviously going to have a much greater impact when people see that we genuinely care. When those that we are speaking to know beyond all doubt that we are saying some very hard truths to them because we love them. The final point then is that we should seek to be consistent. I passed over this in the beginning, but verse 1 tells us that Micah's ministry extended for approximately 60 years. He lived through the reigns of three separate kings of Judah, Jotham, Ahaz and Hezekiah. And if you know anything about them, you'll know that Jotham and and Ahaz were were shockers. And while his ministry in the end bore much fruit and a revival broke out under Hezekiah, for most of his ministry, Micah was rejected. That's got to be one of the hardest things in witnessing, hasn't it? To be constantly sharing the good news and yet not see spiritual fruit. Being consistent in witnessing, though, means persevering. It means staying faithful to the gospel because we know that it's true. God is going to judge the world, but in his mercy, he offers a way of escape. That's the good news that always has to be front and centre and we must never become distracted from. For the devil will do everything in his power to make us focus on anything else, anything. Paul warns us in Titus 3 not to be wrapped up in foolish controversies and genealogies and arguments and quarrels about the law which are ultimately unprofitable and useless. My brothers and sisters in Christ, we need to stay focused on the gospel. To preach Jesus and explain how he alone is our only hope. Because on the day of judgment, He is the only one who can save. Let's pray. Father, what a strong word you've given us today from your word. We want to worship you as the true and living God, the one who is high and exalted and lifted up, the one who dwells in unapproachable light. the one whom we could not stand in your presence because of the holiness and the purity of your character. Lord, we uh, thank you that you've spoken to us through your word this morning. We thank you for the picture that it gives us of who you are and what you are going to do. And we pray that we might respond with the obedience of faith that we might ourselves flee from sin and that we might ourselves be like Micah, being faithful witnesses in your world. Lord, we thank you for your overwhelming love for us, that your mercies are new every morning and that you cut us so that you might heal us. Heal us, we pray, Father. Fill us with your Holy Spirit that we might know your power, that we might see your fruit. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing, shall we, as we prepare our hearts to...
participate in the Lord's Supper and commune with him. Let's stand.